Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homie. I'm your host. I am honored once again by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. The Business Creators Radio Show takes you to those places. We have those mastermind meetings and aha moments. It can change your trajectory or at least bring you a little bit closer to serving to your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Today I come to you from the balcony of my sumptuous apartment here in beautiful Las Vegas, Nevada, known to some as the hottest city in America, and we are going to have an enervating conversation on leadership strategy and management strategy. Now, this is going to be a very, very in-depth conversation. I suspect it's going to go in a few different directions, as a true mastermind meeting conversation actually does. So I invite you, as a listener, to take out a pad of paper and have two pens ready. And I say two pens because you know that one will break or one will run out of ink or your cat will grab it and run off with it. And that way you don't want to be without your pen. Just as you're getting that 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 nugget of wisdom that's going to change something for you or solve some question you didn't even know a few moments ago to ask to resolve a situation or to gain a benefit that you've been searching for for some time. So with us today is Don Schminka, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Code of Executive, and he's been featured in the Wall Street Journal and USA Today. He's an award-winning speaker, researcher, founder of the Saga Leadership Institute, and he's delivered over 1,700 speeches, all of which was a warm-up for him appearing on the Business Creators Radio Show. Don Schminka, come on in. The weather's fine. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> All right. I read off your official bio uh, in just those couple sentences. There's so much credentialization there. I'm not sure I'm worthy to be in your presence. And this is my show. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to, before we dive into the topics that you're going to share with us, is peel open the curtain and have you tell us a bit about your journey and how it's brought you to where you are today, serving from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Uh, geez, it's a interesting background. I mean, yeah, I must dropped out of high school and I didn't really have any, uh, I was a little confused about, you know, where I wanted to go, but I ended up at a community college, uh, cause I was working, I was in rock bands and working at my uncle's gas station and a couple people there noticed something about me. I don't know what they saw, but one thing led to another. I went through a battery of tests. They asked me to apply to MIT and I didn't know what that was. And uh, so I went through um, a number of grueling things, but it uh, I got accepted. And uh, that's what took me into a whole new world. And I started applying myself in the early stages of just learning AI back in the 70s to uh-huh. engineering and planetary physics. And uh, so I got involved in, and I did uh, my uh, thesis with Harvard MIT Biomedical uh, Laboratory that automated 
But that's when I started studying humans. And um, that's what took me. Uh, I left MIT, went to Hopkins, did my graduate work there. And then um, I began studying uh, or teaching actually in the um, at the in the, in the executive MBA program at Johns Hopkins uh, back in the day. And that's what took me into looking at how leaders perform and businesses grow, which I didn't know anything about. But I did know something about people were complaining about the failure rates of management theory. And that's what got me in touch with Oxford University and uh, getting permission to use an ancient manuscript. I had come about on, um, I was doing a lot of expeditionary research in different parts of the world at the time to sort of test certain theories and do some filming and interviewing. And uh, this ancient manuscript emerged and uh, they had um, uh, a professor, Al Sadler at uh, University of Australia had left his legacy and his um his work to Oxford, which of course gave me permission to use it. That's how it came about. So I wrote that, and then I wrote some other books after that. But I started getting consumed by um, the challenge of entrepreneurs and CEOs and leaders. And so I guess I ended up, somebody told me the other day, I've trained about 30,000 CEOs. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. They said, yeah, you've been doing this a long time. <laughs> so I said, okay, I got that. So I got a new book coming out in the fall uh, called Winners and Losers that's really focused just on entrepreneurs to try to pull together all this research that's based in anthropology and evolutionary genetics and then test it with uh, some of the largest and smallest companies uh, in over 100 industries. So that's how I got here. And so between the writing and the teaching, by teaching, I mean doing speeches and workshops, and um, I'm starting to get into blogging and maybe even doing my own podcast series so I can be as successful as you and try to get this word out. <laughs> well, uh, you are in the right place uh, for podcasting, uh, but let's put a bookmark in that. And what I want to, I'm really curious about this research. I, I, I mean, one of my avocations is neuroscience. I love the intricacies of how the brain works. I've made some amazing discoveries through being a recipient of hypnotherapy. I mean, they, I heard all my life that the most powerful computer that will ever develop is the one between the two human ears. And my research and my experiences have taught me that that is really indeed the case. We have powers, reserve powers, that we don't even know are there. So when I hear about research, this is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, because I know you uh, did a very significant research project, and I think we'll start there. So what was that pivotal moment when you realized, Don, that something was missing that needed to be addressed within leadership development? Well, as I began putting, pulling together uh, executive uh, groups, and some of these were um, uh, in membership organizations, associations, and, and some were just companies where I went in, they brought me in and I worked with their executive teams, is they all started uh, talking about the same issues. And um, some issues were more important than others, depending on the decade. But, uh, you know, it's always around people issues or marketplace uh, issues, branding, competition. How are we doing? Are we growing? Um, and so there, a lot of this, I found out, even though the shock was when I went back to look at what they were reading, I found out that there were 35,000 business books published annually and no yeah. one had told them that. And I'm like, why has no one told you this before? I say you publish more than cancer research, but at least we're making progress in cancer research. Just you're dealing with 
issues that are shared around the world. Uh, but then that's when I, um, the Oxford, uh, when I started using the ancient samurai training manuals for training managers, and that's when I published the code of the executive, I saw the same issues they were dealing with. So this opened up a whole new world thinking like, well, how old are these issues? So we went back even further and we been, we found out that the more we went back, the more they were the same. In other words, you know, you go back to Alexander or Caesar, or Genghis Khan, and you know, you find that, wait a minute, we're dealing with the same stuff. But for okay. some, we've got 35,000 books a year and it's still the same problems exist. So what are we missing? And that's what really took us on a journey to uh, discover uh, a new model of leadership that if we could test it and it worked, we knew we were onto something. So we began testing it and uh, companies started growing two to three times faster, in some cases, 10 times their size. And uh, that's when we knew that we had, um, you know, had stumbled onto something that, you know, has been known for thousands of years, but for some reason we just forget to teach it or, or write about it. Yeah. One of my things I really love studying is autobiographies because theory is great. Uh, but I love to see how people who have dealt with actual situations have proceeded on that and what guided them to do it and what the results they got were and how they reacted to that. To me, experience is one of the best teachers of all. And the second best way to do it, in my view, is to put yourself looking through the eyes of somebody else and seeing their experiences. So I think one of the things that we see over and over again, and you you were very macro there, I'm going to bring this down to micro, is how we assess leadership and management. And we continue to have this model where we see that people get promoted into management positions based on how they performed in their subordinate position, which did not involve management. So you may be a, you may be a salesperson and you consistently run head and shoulders above the best numbers for a year. So you say, okay, congratulations, you're a sales manager now. All right. Well, I can tell you a real story about that. A friend of mine who's been in car sales for 30 years, it's the only thing he's ever done. Even in high school, he was selling cars. Uh, I mean, you mentioned the uh, looking for a direction in high school. I think he was about his junior year. He already had his direction. He was uh, he was officially a detailer, but he was also selling. And uh, I've and today he's a uh, sales manager for a dealership, and he does very well with it. But the first couple times, and I'm saying this the way I'm saying it, the first couple times he was promoted into management positions, he was barely there a week before he begged to be put back on the floor. Mm-hmm. And what it came down to is a combination of two things, which I couldn't articulate at the time, and I'm not sure he could either, because he and I just didn't really get all that deeply into it. But I think it was, uh, I think it was a realization that where he was in his own journey management was not the intersection of his brilliance and his passion and number two at least a tacit recognition that his brilliance on the sales floor had not yet reached the point where it translated into leading others to achieve the same mm-hmm. and i think that i think that uh, we i think there's a gap there and i think you see it as well as i do as do our listeners is okay so the guy did really really well on the sales floor well, that well, he deserves the management position. We got to promote this guy, but is he the right person to manage? And even if he is, is he prepared to manage? 
Yeah. And I think that's a gap that uh, we, I mean, you want to talk, you want to talk about the, uh, the uh, diminishing returns of repeated actions. That's a classic right there. Yeah. We, we've run into that many times as, uh, as I'm sure you have too, which with, uh, you know, again, uh, an executive's dysfunctioning and then you ask the CEO, how did they get their role? And it's well, because they were really good at what they did before. I promoted them. Uh-huh. And so there really are two different worlds. Um, and, and I admire him for wanting to get back to what he did well because uh, I think we get seduced by our beliefs that um, taking on leadership roles is just an advancement of what we're already doing well when it's it's not necessarily the case. And, and in fact, I was um, starting my blog. I was uh, uh, I just got into this because I had some students say, "God, can you can you bust some more myths?" Because you know, yeah. I spent a workshop busting myths all over the place. So, so uh, my latest one that came out last week was on lead dogs. And uh, because the everybody's like, you've heard all the saying, you know, you got to be the lead dog or the view never, never changes or uh-huh. uh, at somebody's butt. And, you get, so, and, and it's, it's this belief that we have to move up to be better or to be important. And at the end of the day, it's I think it's just um, all bullshit. I mean, <laughs> you know, um, and, and I went through looking at some of these authors and speakers and consultants and I, and I found out that none of them ran, ran a dog sled team. And so I'm like, how can you talk about lead dogs when you, you've never seen a lead dog? So anyway, I then I got into the work we had done running dog sled teams because it's, it's sort of an, it's something that I fell into. I'm not real professional at it, but whenever I'm out in the mountains and there, there's a dog sled area, I'll see, Hey, can we get, can I come by and run some sleds? And uh, it's it's interesting because um, the dogs that had the hardest time are the lead dogs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and the dogs behind them aren't aren't standing standing at their ass. They're not doing that. They're they're uh, looking to the sides. They're barking at each other. Sometimes they're jumping the line. Uh, like in one case, where two dogs jumped the line to the other side, team became unbalanced, and the sled starts going off into deep snow in a ravine, you know, and it's just, so I, and the poor lead dogs are trying to keep everybody on the trail. Meanwhile, the sled's gone off. I'm, I'm standing on the snow break, but this, it's just too, this, the snow's too soft. It's too deep. It's not working. And then I realized this thing's going to tip. So, well, my son's at my five-year-old son inside. Right. And uh, mm-hmm. I leap to the outer, which we're trained to do the outer uh, rung and uh, the outer rail. And we just leaned, i leaned back you know, like you're doing in sailboat racing or racing a catamaran to keep it on before a snowboat could catch up and, and halt the team. So the poor lead dogs, I mean, they, they were just having a hard time. They couldn't get this thing going the way it should have went. And I see this in organizations that leadership, in fact, when I wrote the book, High Altitude Leadership with Chris Warner. Now, you know, he's like the top rescue climber in the world. And I met him climbing in the Andes. So, uh, we wrote this book together, High Altitude Leadership. And we start off with, you know, leadership sucks. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, I had a good laboratory through him because he was going to do the K2 thing with NBC. So we literally did the, li- the book live during the NBC filming uh, for this book. And again, we found the same thing that, you know, it's tough when you're trying to lead humans uh, to higher levels. And uh, it's not as uh, you know s- sexy and, and exciting as people think it is, 
And so I think we need to teach leadership differently. And one of those elements is why do you want to be a leader? Because it's uh, it's going to be different and you may hate it. And now if you love it, that's great. But um, a lot of people get promoted into positions, as you mentioned, that um, probably shouldn't have been. They should have found other ways to utilize and grow and develop these people uh, to do what they want to do versus have them lead humans. Because leading humans isn't really doing the work you love, <laughs> unless you love leading humans. Well, and some people do love leading humans. And to me, and this is a thought that I have, is leading humans is to me, a key part of leadership, because ultimately, it's those humans. And you want to go back to the the metaphor of the of the pack of dogs. If one of those dogs trips, it can cause a chain reaction. And there goes your caravan. Mm -hmm. If one of those dogs just decides to stop running, that can also cause a chain reaction. It can cause all the dogs to trip on each other. It can if they're harnessed together, it can also cause the other dogs to say, well, this dog's not running. I'm not running either. Why should I? Why should I bust my tail? <laughs> <laughs> and and those are things we see in workplaces too. And I I myself uh, during the five or six years that I was in corporate America and worked in various corporate positions, you know, it got it got to a point where I showed up ready to do an honest day's work, and I saw these uh, and I saw these people mailing it in who had their jobs due to nepotism, and. Uh, and somehow they're getting rewarded and I'm the goat. And mm -hmm. I don't mean greatest of all time is in the goat, the one they kick around. Well, mm -hmm. at, one, at what point do I realize, you know, I'm going to get the same paycheck no matter what I do. Right. And, and we did and we did get to a point. And I covered this in um, one of my other interviews on this show uh, when we delved, when me and my guest delved into the, I'm trying to think which one it was. It'll come to me. But, oh, it was when I interviewed... Uh, Becca Powers, but I can't remember the name of the episode. But anyway, uh, when somebody goes into quiet quitting mode, they act for a while, you may actually see their performance improve. And this to me goes to one of the other fallacies and one of the other error, the errors. Here's why. Because when somebody gets to the point where they're quiet quitting, that means they haven't gotten to the point where they figured out what their next job or their next move is going to be. So they're going to stick around for this paycheck. Which means they're going to take some of the they're going to take some of the pressure off themselves in the meantime. They're not going to innovate. They're not going to buck the system. So now they're not going to be seen as high maintenance or intransigent or or not a team player or all the other labels we sometimes stick on people who don't just blindly follow the corporate line. What they'll do is they'll whip out their copy of the job description. They'll go through all the bullet points and they'll say, "Am I doing this? Yes. Am I doing this? Yes. Am I doing this? No." But it starts today. And then they're going to evaluate everything that they do, every deliverable they turn in against their job description. Is it fulfilling those bullets? Yes. Is it outside the bullets? Well, if it's outside the bullets, I don't have to do that. It's not my job description. But in the meantime, here's the funny thing. On paper, metrically, it looks like they're improving because for a while, they've gone from innovating to just simply fulfilling written expectations. So if you want to look at that strictly on spreadsheets and comparing bullet points, it looks like they've gotten more focused where they finally got disciplined and got their act together and started doing their damn job. Isn't that funny how that works? Yeah, I think um, 
Today, uh, what I'm seeing is this um, during COVID and the remote work and the whole mass resignation thing is uh, there's a shift. Not everyone, but I think about a third of the CEOs are having a hard time finding the great talent. And yeah. It. Because I think a lot of those people that might have quietly quit thought, wait a minute, I I can get another job easily. And they don't have to be in the state I'm in. Like, I don't have to move my family. And uh, if there's something more exciting, I, I, I can do have more opportunities now. So there's good and bad to that. I mean, the, I mean, the good thing is people can explore careers and, and uh, work elements that previously were barrier restricted. Um, uh-huh. On the other hand, then companies are now realizing, geez, these people left in mass. How long were these just sitting there? And right. you got to take the game up a little bit and say, well, why, why should we work for us? You know, what are we up to? And how do we win? It's one of the things I think is interesting is that whenever I, we have people coming to us or new clients coming on board, we want to try to find out what does winning mean or we need to create that meaning because if we can't agree on what winning means, nothing else means anything. That includes how we structure, how we develop, who we hire, culture, um, because how we're going to win in the marketplace is really the most ancient question, you know. What does winning mean and how are we going to do it? So the people thing, I think, is just an artifact of a number of uh, questions that CEOs and leaders need to be asking. And if we get too focused on the operational urgencies, we miss the big pictures. And that's what I find. A lot of people get, a lot of executives get sucked into operations. They start dealing with tactical conflicts. They're wondering why there's so much internal fighting when it's like, look, take a step back, take a breath. What is your strategy? And a lot of times they can't answer the question. Like, well, we have no idea. I mean, our strategy is to make uh, an extra two million next year. It's not a strategy. That's a, That's a goal. Yeah, it's like you know, it, it's a goal, and as, you, and as I heard you say, it's a score. So we're looking. At, it's like it's like going. It's like going into the championship game and saying we're going to score twenty one points. But then somebody asks you, well. What are your What are your plays? Have you diagrammed them? Uh, how How are you? Uh, who are your starters? Um, who Who are your closers? Who are your reliefs? Um, uh, what particular strengths do your players have? And if you can't answer those questions, you ain't getting those twenty one. Yeah, and it's even more basic than that. Do I bring a tennis racket, a football, a bat, or running shoes? I mean, what are we talking about? Yeah, <laughs> and and you know, you you bring that up, and it may sound like it's in jest, but uh, I can tell you, I've seen with my own eyes, uh, both as working in that world and as being a consultant to that world that how many times have people brought a tennis racket to a football game? Yeah. <laughs> or how many people brought a soccer ball to a football game because they, uh, they uh, didn't check to see which type of football it was. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, with, with, cause I remember, you know, when I, quiet quit back in 2004 in my last job uh, you know fast forward like two months from there and man i was getting praise like you know it's so great uh you finally got it together your numbers are up uh yeah you, 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 you all the you know, everything seems to be aligned you you're, you're getting it and um th- and i just said thank you very much um um, um thank and thank you for your mentorship that helped me get there they probably didn't see my fingers crossed with the hand I was holding behind my back because the part I didn't say is, yeah, do you notice I've uh, been showing up exactly on time and leaving exactly on time and taking my full lunch hour? Because I've already checked out of here. 
um, saving my brilliance and passion for my side gig, which I'm looking to jump into full time for the end of the year. I didn't say that part. Mm. I just, I just, I just got myself really familiar with the bullet points they were looking for and made my work conform to it. Now, in the short down, the short term, that removed an administrative hassle. In the long term, what did it cost them? Yeah, I think the leaders who are leading people, if you can't find that out in the people that you're trying to lead, then then you're missing, you know, an opportunity. And, yeah. Um, it's it's um, it's a journey at leading humans, and it's a lot different than a lot of what we're teaching in our popular business theories. And so that's when we, you know, are looking at taking organizational performance to a new level. It depends on what it means. You know, what does the new level mean? What does winning mean? Yeah. And for each company. And so uh, we try to do a lot of preliminary situational analysis to determine what that is. But at the end of the day, um, humans aren't following. It's another one of those myths that I have to do another blog post on. Yeah. Um, people follow people follow leaders, and it's not true. Um, when Apple started supporting the um, the innovation research, the creativity, the brain research that uh, my colleague Cameron Logman was pioneering. Um, Steve Jobs had died, and uh, they started writing books and movies about him. and And everything they said was he was an asshole. <laughs> yeah, he was a jerk. He basically violated everything we teach in our business schools about how to be a good manager and leader and yet for some reason he creates the most powerful company in the world so the question that is never asked that i think is the only question to ask is how does a guy who leads like that who violates everything where we think is is great leadership end up creating a company like that and that's what took us into a whole nother area of research so even though cameron was pioneering this great area but the innovation in the brain which they needed to find out because what the hell was going on in steve jobs brain yeah uh, realized that that wasn't the first event i went through history and there are a lot of great leaders and great people that have 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 conquered and won and built great companies that uh were assholes and i thought why are we teaching this and and then i realized that we're teaching leadership wrong because leaders um, followers never follow leaders uh, what followers are actually following is uh, what we call the compelling saga. We stole it from the Vikings. You know, the compelling yeah. saga, the, the story the leader represents. And so when I challenge CEOs, like, what's the story? What's the saga that you represent for your people? That's what they're following. And most of them can't answer the question. And so we end up doing some work on how to do that because it's like, look, until you have a saga, until you have this, this epic strategic drama, the story that you represent, what are they following? Your personality? And so that really revolutionized a lot of the organizations we've worked with. And I think we should start teaching it that way. So for instance, if, you're, if your boss had actually had a story, had a, um, uh, some strategic drama that you got consumed with, that you were just hot about winning, 
then you could have had the conversation like, look, I'm just showing up and I don't want to just show up. I want to do more of what you're doing or what you're seeing and where you're going. And tell me more about that, because that's the game I'm going to be in. And I'm kind of checked out. And a good leader would say, thank you for bringing that up. Here's exactly what I need you to do. Or here's exactly what's missing for me. And what can we do to fill that? I mean, you would have been teamed up with taking the team, you know, to the next level, as opposed to, I think some supervisors and managers don't even think of asking that question. All right. Here's a, and I'm wondering if this is a different way of stating it, but I've given this type of thing, a different type of thought. So sometimes I get the opportunity to have my guests tell me if I'm on the right path or not. So Steve Jobs, I remember an anecdote about him, is that he would do some MBWA, which is management by walking around, and he would go up to random people, whether it was developers, whether it was managers, whether it was the people in the mailroom. And he would he would approach you. It didn't matter if he knew your name or not, because he always had the same question for you. What are you working on? Mm-hmm. Woe betide you if you could not tell him what you were working on and how it benefited Apple. Right. So what I believe he was doing there is that was his way of testing to see the extent to which the organization was aligned with Apple's goals. And by creating that sense that at any time, Steve Jobs himself could come right up to you and ask you what you're doing. It got you thinking about what you were doing and how that and how you were supporting Apple's mission and how you were understanding Apple's mission. And I think that that had something to do without actually having people chant slogans and helping them to really viscerally understand why they were there and what their opportunities were to be of service and to make positive change. Now, here's another thing. Uh, I'm a, a big buff when it comes to United States presidential history. I can't get enough of it. Do not put me on a Wikipedia in front of an article about a president at uh, 10 o'clock at night, because by six in the morning, I'll still be going over some of the 27 ancillary browser tabs I've opened. But anyway, um, there was a book I read, and this is another case where I'm not remembering the title, where they compared uh, they compared the uh, the internal leadership styles of some of our recent presidents. I'm going to pull up two examples, uh, actually two who one we succeed the other, Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. So to keep this brief, Reagan uh, was contrary to what we know him as the great communicator, as a person was highly introverted, which I can relate to myself. So People in the West Wing, uh, Reagan would occasionally be walking around and you, know, you make eye contact with him. He's going to give you a little friendly nod and keep walking. And he probably has no idea who you are. He just assumes if you're there, you probably belong there and his people have it handled. Uh, Bush, on the other hand, would stop by your desk and uh, ask you about your family and uh, chat with you about uh, things you enjoyed doing. And sometimes he would randomly look up your parents and call them and tell them what a great job you were doing. And when they went and asked some staffers which who had worked for both presidents, which one they preferred, they all, they all I think, except for one or two, chose Reagan. Mm-hmm. Here's the reason why. With Reagan, let's say he came up to your desk, and every so often he would actually do this. He'd stop by, and, and similar to Steve Jobs, he'd say, oh, what are you working on? Well, you knew that in order to give an answer that would please Reagan, you had to show him that you were working on one of a few core issues, such as beating the communists, lowering taxes, reducing the size of federal government. Anybody from that era remembers what the four or five key pillars of Reaganism were. 
with Bush, well, other than reacting to events, they weren't really sure what his program was. So they experienced a level of frustration knowing if what they were doing was actually what they were supposed to be doing. With Reagan, it was clear. If somebody asked you that question, you knew what to link it to. With mm-hmm. Bush, yeah, who knows? And from, and on a day-to-day, and in terms of building your own career and developing your own track record, you've got to know where the track is and be riding it in order to develop a track record. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I, and I found that very interesting when I read that. Well, people are, fo- you know, they, they're following that. Um, like, what's that person up to? And can they yeah. see and they see? And that's a level, then it brings a level of trust. Alia Jack's psychiatric research around uh, levels of complex thinking and how to organize around that was revolutionary and so politically incorrect, it was not adopted. But I mean, a lot of people do adopt it, but um, most people don't know about it. But it was like, you know, human, humans each have a certain level of complex thinking and and it's either you got it or you don't. You, the level you're on, the level you're on is the level you're on. Yeah. It violates all personal development and everybody's got potential and everybody can think outside the box. And basically, when you look at the neurological research, that's all bullshit. I mean, oh, my God, everybody's where you should be and you can perform where you should be. But it's hard to take someone with a low level of complex thinking that could run a maybe a, a, a one week plan very well and say, now I want you to, to run a five year plan for the future of our business. And their eyes glaze over. And I made this mistake more than once uh, when I brought in teams to, you know, scale the IP that we have been developing and it would, they were just clueless. And I didn't realize I was violating my own research because I had to tell them what to do. And then they couldn't understand how to do it. And that was the problem. Uh, I did bring on one person and all of a sudden she starts telling me what to do. She's like, you got all these areas in, but, but this isn't scalable. And this is, and this is, so we got to do that. And all of a sudden I'm sitting there like, oh my God, that's what I've been looking for. You know, I want somebody, I got to tell them how to do their job. I, I just hired the wrong person, you know? So I, I think um, leadership is not only providing, as you, you were describing, uh, something for people to follow, but also being to put people in those roles where they can join and follow. And in other words, it's, it's, it's hard when you're, you know, you're, you leave the dock and you have to be below deck all the time telling people how to clean cannons and row the boat or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, uh, there are two in the box thinkers. I really appreciate those are my cats. And anybody who has cats knows that you really want them to be in the box thinkers, if you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) But but outside of that, uh, to your point, not everybody is designed to be an out of the box thinker. Right. You know, as as I as I as I, you know, one of the things I see sometimes in the entrepreneurial world is people saying, "How could you stand going and sitting in a cubicle for eight hours a day and working on spreadsheets?" You know, there are people out there who crave that. And there, and uh, and that is their intersection of their brilliance and their passion, their sense of value, worth, making a difference, making the world a better place by being part of it by their contributions to it, is in managing the living hell out of those spreadsheets. And you know, we need those people. Exactly. <laughs> so there are some folks you do not want to disturb while they're doing their best work. 
And yeah. uh, not, not everybody was designed to be Bill Gates, uh, Jeff Bezos, or Elon Musk. But at the same time, those three guys would uh, be nowhere without the people who know how to run the spreadsheets. And we need people at all levels. That's the whole point. It gets back to your, your promotion piece. I mean, if we promoted everybody to be a vice president, we have nobody actually doing real work with customers. And yeah. it's like you need more people delivering value at the levels that make an impact versus people that are at the top thinking. Because if our civilization just had a lot of thinkers, we'd have starved because nobody's collecting food. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, on the other hand, if you have a lot of people that are that are that are just dealing with the uh, the meaningful high impact day to day level stuff, but not someone setting direction, you know, then you probably will make a lot of progress uh, in terms of civilization and how to allocate resources properly and how to grow and develop. So you need, it's, it needs to be a partnership, but at the top, you only need a few people doing the higher level thinking. Most people should be actually engaging in, in meaningful, productive work. Yeah, and I, and I think that to me, one of the opportunities we have is to remove the stigma from that. Yes. There's nothing wrong with productive work. Productive work is good. I love productive work myself. Uh, and, you know, let's look at... Um, Let's look at some of these folks I mentioned, and I'm going to single out Bill Gates and Elon Musk, two out of the three I mentioned. I, I brought up those three names for a reason. Uh, with Bill Gates and also with Elon, you'll notice they go through a pattern when they acquire companies. When they first acquire the company or found the company, for a brief period of time, they personally will lead it. If it's an acquisition, they'll tear the whole model down and rebuild it in their own image. If it's something new, they'll build it from the ground up using guerrilla tactics. Once they got the thing up and running, they step aside and they bring in a new CEO. Mm -hmm. The reason being is they are the tinkerers. Bill Gates wanted out, wanted out of the CEO seat at Microsoft because he wanted to play with the software development. Uh, we saw with Twitter just very recently, Elon was only CEO of Twitter for a few months before he brought in somebody else. Because where his greatest contribution to Twitter is, A, he came in and completely reformed it and got things moving in the direction he wanted to go. And now he just likes playing with code. Yeah. I mean, he, he is a guy who will sit in front of a computer for 20 hours and solve one piece of code. And it was the same uh, when he put that same level of focus during his time as the active executive of Tesla. He would take a mat out and sleep on a production floor. That's, mm -hmm. how, that's how close to the action he was. Another thing that's uh, not all that well known about him is I believe he might own a mansion somewhere. I'm not sure, but I don't think he lives there. It is pretty well known that he owns some $35,000 house in Texas because he has to legally live somewhere for legal purposes. But his actual residences are little cubicles he has at the executive offices of each of his companies. And if he's not there, he's staying in hotels or crashing on his friend's couches. Because he has, no, he has no mansion need. What he needs is to be close to the action wherever he is at any given time. And that goes to something that I think impacts in a way how we view leadership and management is prestige. So for some people, the idea of prestige is, well, now that I've reached a certain point, 
I have to have a bigger house or I'm not really successful, or I have to have a nicer car or I'm not really successful. And, I'll, and for those who want to argue that point, I'll point out Bill Gates's Ford Escort that he drove for all those years. Yeah. I mean, uh, gets back to the point being lead dog sucks. You got to really want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so in the cases uh, we've just discussed here, these are, these are folks who enjoy being at the head of the pack, but it's, you have to look at what pack they're actually leading and what their contribution to the pack really is. It's not necessarily being the figurehead. Right. Uh, another term uh, that we see for these types of innovators and executives who then bring on somebody else to actually be the CEO are you can view them as the types who own the company, uh, their influence controls the company, but they need adult supervision. So they bring in a, they bring in somebody to babysit them. I mean, I mean, because uh, when you look at somebody like Elon Musk, does the word discipline come to mind? Discipline and, uh, and creativity. I mean, there's a... Uh... Bingo. I, you, you went where I was going with this. Not the traditional term of discipline, like I use task lists. I uh, show up promptly on time. I work 10 hours a day. I make sure to get my workout in. I follow all these procedures. I turn in my paperwork on that time. Not that type of discipline. He has a different type of discipline. Yes. Yeah. And to me, that goes back to what we were discussing earlier is understanding where people's brilliance and passion really are and making sure they're in the right place in the dog pack. Yeah. So how does, uh, you know, as we, you know, we're coming fairly close to the end here, uh, and I, we may be jumping a little bit ahead, so you may need to back up on me a little bit here. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, a leader becoming a samurai. So how do they do that in order to enhance their personal leadership, enhance their career? When we get at picking up uh, organizational speed, we find that what's stopping organizations from executing quickly and being decisive uh, is uh, usually ego and uh, power and fear-based behaviors, which is why we see when we do our studies, um, we find that most, well, employees, executives, middle managers will say that somewhere between 20 to 80%, but the average is around 50% of people's time in the business are, are, are in dysfunctional behaviors, you know, silos, clicks, um, you know, uh, withholding information, power, um, you know, you go through the whole political spectrum of what humans do, and a lot of that is occurring. And so we went to find out, like, how to get speed going. And it was the ancient manuscript. We began testing how to die properly as a technique for speed. And it worked. And it worked uh -huh. so well that we just, so when I published the code of the executive, that was just the beginning. It was back in the 90s. Um, but then um, at Hopkins, I began to um, get connected with a lot of brilliant people. And it turns out it's, it's very biologically, um, I guess, uh, explainable because our ego is there for genetic warfare. And genetic warfare, we're pretty successful at because we've got a species still alive. Most species are extinct, but the species that are still alive are selfish. And that's why selfishness yeah. is strategy but it gets in the way for organizational performance so getting rid of selfishness means you have to detach the ego's imprint which is with us since birth 
which is why most children are selfish. Um, and the way to unhook that, that I think the samurai stumbled onto is detach the reason for being selfish, detach the reason for uh, survivability and genetic warfare. And that was in imagining that you have to die and accepting your death. At that point, then things emerged throughout history with these types of teams and today with companies, even the ones that we've worked with to test this, is they achieved the levels of bravery and honor. And I thought, wow, this should be the first class in leadership training It's how to die properly so that we can invoke bravery and honor in our people versus the normal selfish uh, Dilbert level or the office level behaviors that we all enjoy watching because it's the, it's the world we live in. Yeah. And so I think um, becoming samurai was a matter of just remembering that someday we must die so that what they call the evil spirit, but what we now call the ego, unhooks its grip and we can focus with more bravery and honor and also open ourselves up to suffering and sacrifice. Another two things that we fail to teach in our business schools is can we get people to suffer and sacrifice with us? Because if you've got those elements, that's how you create these, these great companies. As you were describing, you know, people sleeping on the floor, people being close to the action. I mean, you get people around you that are willing to suffer and sacrifice with you for a greater cause. And they're coming from a space of, of bravery and honor. That's an unstoppable team. You know what I mean? It's not, that's, mm-hmm. you get this whole happy employment movement going on. I'm all for, you know, happy employees, but I'll put a team up that has bravery and honor and they're willing to suffer and sacrifice against a happy employee movement any day, because I think they'll outrun them. I think they'll outmaneuver them. I think their products will be more innovative. I think their customer service will be superior. I think, you know, I just think it's, it's a, from what I've seen in industry, it seems to be a better way to lead. Yeah. And to me, that comes down to, alignment and being at your intersection of your brilliance and your passion because you'll suffer for what you really want you'll Mm -hmm. suffer for what is for what is viscerally authentic to you not so much for something that isn't yeah right so in in your previous role in your previous job where you said you had you know we're going through this uh this discovery and just showing up for work obviously they failed to do that with you I gave them four years and all they did was shove org charts in my face and say, see how low you are on this org chart? Why are you opening your mouth? <laughs> how many, how much, how, how much time am I going to spend beating my fist on a brick wall before I get sick of bleeding? Mm-hmm. So I actually put myself through pain and all I got was, well, we're going to hurt you some more. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I got little crumbs thrown at me every now and then, but I never really, except for two of my supervisors, I never really felt that I was all that appreciated. Um, I felt I, I felt more under attack, like uh, somehow my very existence was offending the entire organization. Well, you know, how long is somebody going to put up with that? And once I got to the point of quiet quitting, uh, when it came time for the uh, struggle and sacrifice, where do you think I was going to be? Right, exactly. Up. Oh. Not my day's open. My day's off at four thirty. Um, next trolley comes in at four thirty-seven. I want to make it. Mm-hmm. That's where I was. Right. I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't there hanging out another two hours. They they had me for that, and they told me they didn't want it. Yeah. 
So I don't care if somebody there is listening to this right now. And, uh, and if this is something that they believe or don't believe or uh, want to argue about, that's fine. But as I see it, they chose mediocrity. And I'll and I'll and I'll stick by that. Hey, if they have a if they have a different version of the story, then that's their different version of the story. But you know, the thing that I've learned over time, and it took me a while to get here, is that others people's stories about you are not your stories. Mm-hmm. So this has been really, really, really interesting. I, I love these types of mastermind dives so one final question is if anybody here is in a leadership or management position or aspires to be what is one thing that you don would urge them to do or consider as soon as they finish streaming this episode other than of course buying your book (laughs) well i've got several books out there i I would say you know if you're going to do anything and you want to keep up on the research just go to the website because you may not need the book maybe you just need a an idea to move forward um uh, that's sagaleadership.com by the way yeah and- I, I was going to say that in a moment but uh it's okay for you to jump the gun yeah sure i just told <laughs> Vikings, you know the saga leadership and i think saga. The, this question is to look at you know why do you want to be a leader i mean um you know what's behind all that but if you do choose choose to be a leader and you realize that hey it's not going to be uh always a lot of fun and I may have to be the lead dog running into a collision, but I got to, you know, that's my role <laughs> is, am I willing to, uh, to do the suffering and sacrifice to become a leader and, and, uh, to, uh, you know, take the risks and to develop myself because that's, that's the level of commitment. And I think, um, when I see the great CEOs I work with, they're always the ones that are questioning themselves you know, uh, you know, what am I missing? What's the what's the next performance gap I have to leave? How do I improve? And and they're really open. Yeah. They're very coaching. We do not take on clients that already know everything because they are totally unable to be helped. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, I remember when I was in my 30s and I finally found out I didn't know everything. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, you know, the advice that we urge parents to give their teenagers is, is 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 son daughter move out quick while you still know it all yeah right (laughs) you have the edge right now yeah right 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 and uh and you know we we make jokes about that but i think part of that is just that the human brain does not develop on an arbitrary timetable we call somebody an adult at either 18 or 21 depending on how you define that here in the united states but there's actually they still have a ways to go before their brain reaches maturity yeah and i don't think we as a society do enough of that so we uh so for example we look at oh you're 24 years old and you haven't moved out of your parents house yet and we say that like that's a bad thing what if it's not a bad thing i didn't leave my parents house until i was 27 although i can tell you that Part of the reason I stayed as long as I did is because from the time I was 23, I had a full-time job and was pursuing an MBA full-time. And then as soon as I finished the MBA, I still had the full-time job, got diagonally promoted in it, but I quickly got bit by the entrepreneurial bug. So I spent a further two years 
working on turning this side gig into a sustainable business. And I didn't know back then what I know now. Instead of two years, it could have been six months. I get that now. But, you know, and anyway, even somebody who told me that, who was I to listen? Because I, I knew everything at the time, remember? So um, so some folks may not be ready to make that transition yet. But I can tell you, the moment that I had that business up and running on its own, and I was drawing my uh, my living expenses off of it, I was out of there in about three seconds. Mm-hmm. It's just a ma- It's just a matter of when the individual is is truly ready to take that next step and then and then then we don't ask well what if the parents need you because then they make the argument that you know your parents do so much for you growing up and i think you mentioned you have kids too if i'm correct and you know you gave so much to them you you were their you were their their guide their mentor their leader their protector and what if they want to stick around and give back so many parents wonder when their kids are going to call and then other parents are blessed with kids that don't want to leave because they want to give back who are we to discourage that i know that's a that's a good question to sit with so i'll break the silence there Hmm. all right so with that again i'm going to encourage all of our listeners uh you do want to visit dawn's website. It's sagaleadership.com. I might have mispronounced that at first. It's S-A-G-A-L-E-A-D-E-R-S-H-I-P.com. And you can find some of Don's speeches. You can find his books. You can find the blog he's mentioned a couple times. I've looked at it and I've seen a a few articles. Uh, The one about the butterfly effect was particularly interesting to me. But uh, go ahead and uh, go ahead and check that out. And you may find some further inspiration and if you want to go ahead and speak with don uh reach out to him his contact information is there follow him on social media his links are right there uh i believe they're right underneath his bio and uh tell him the business creators radio show sent you i love when i love when people get that joyous feeling of knowing that they connected with somebody so with that don schminka thank you so much for being with us today it's been an honor and believe me in education hey well thank you too i've enjoyed it we trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care. <laughs>